You're gathered together with your Sunday or with your family on a Sunday afternoon, and you are engaged in your, your second liturgy of the day, this one revolving around football. And you begin comparing uh, quarterbacks and, and, and maybe putting together your fantasy team. Now, I'm not a football guy myself, but how strange would it be to compare them based not on their ability to do their job, uh, which as I understand it is, is throwing the ball, but to compare them based on how many likes they have on Facebook, or how wise they are, or how witty they are, or how many kids they have, uh, or uh, whether or not they decide to, to wear their regular uniform uh, one day uh, and, uh, and instead uh, wear jeans on the field. Now, obviously, this is all silly. But the Christians in Corinth had started doing this, not with football players, but with their pastors. Some had started devoting themselves exclusively to the Apostle Paul, others to Pastor uh, Apollos, and still others to Pastor Cephas. And so Paul tells them that the wisdom of God is wiser than men. And if that's the case, then you shouldn't follow men based on their wisdom or their skills or their habits or their clothing. But you should regard pastors as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries and not follow them based on their wittiness, but based on their faithfulness to the teachings of Christ. Simply put, judge a pastor for his ability to receive the word of God from Jesus and to throw that exact same word straight to you, both law and gospel. Not much different than the one job of the quarterback. And so Paul, right in the middle of our text, says how he regards it when people judge pastors for anything else, anything other than this. He says, but it is a trivial matter to me if I am evaluated by you or by a day in a human court. Why, I do not even evaluate myself. I do not, in fact, know of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. Rather, the one who evaluates me is the Lord. I'll be honest, this is not an easy attitude for pastors to have. Pastors want to be liked. Pastors are real people, too, with real feelings. And we like to, to be able to solve every problem in a congregation with, with uh, no hurt feelings or pushback. We'd like to be able to preach a sermon that, that's funny and witty each Sunday and speaks to, to everyone. And we'd like to be able to condemn sin without hurting anyone's feelings. But it's just not possible. And not just because we are real people too, but more than that, Paul says that the message of the cross is offensive. It's foolishness. More people statistically will hate me for my message or at the very least be indifferent and ignore me. The Word of God will always be a stumbling block to people. And so it can be very appealing for pastors to, to appeal to people based on, on, on their personal likes and interests, or to try tricks and improve the power of God's Word 
if that were possible. But of all pastors of all time, to seemingly not care what people thought about him, and to simply throw God's law and gospel straight to people, it was John the Baptist, whom we heard about in our gospel lesson. And it's true, most people don't care about John the Baptist. I mean, John is probably the most important figure in Advent, besides Jesus. Mary doesn't show up in, in, in any lessons. Joseph doesn't show up in any lessons. The wise men don't show up in any lessons. John the Baptist is almost in every lesson that we hear during the season of Advent. But you won't find a plastic light-up figure of John the Baptist in people's front lawns during this season with a winnowing fork in one hand and an axe in the other. And you probably aren't going to get a Christmas card with a greeting from John, with John in the front saying, Merry Christmas, you brood of vipers. I mean, I hope not. John, of all people, didn't care what people thought about him. Jesus even sarcastically asked the crowd who have gone out to see John who they thought he was. A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, this, this sort of a, a wimpy guy who just bends over at the littlest bit of pressure? Or, or a man dressed in soft clothing? Meaning someone who's, who's all pretentious and has to wear these nice clothes and, and if they get a little stain on it, then, then, then the whole world falls apart. John is absolutely not these John is described as wearing scratchy camel's hair. And John eats locusts for his meals. He doesn't care what people think about him. He smells. He lives in the desert. He's loud. He's blunt. He's weird. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus asks, what did you go out in the wilderness to see to focus, like St. Paul does, the attention on what God calls a minister to do. Jesus says that the right answer would be that they went out to see a prophet. And a prophet is someone who points to Jesus. And they themselves get out of the way. In fact, when, when the people started to, to put their trust in John one time, John said this, which really should be the motto of every pastor. He said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. And John preached the law with, with such force that later, even preaching against King Herod himself, and even though Herod liked him because John was so weird, still John would be so hated for his message that he would be beheaded. And it's not long before this that John's in prison. And this is the context for our gospel lesson today. But tough guy John sends two disciples, two of his disciples, to Jesus to ask him this. Are you the coming one, or should we wait for someone else? That's just heart-wrenching to hear John ask that. Are you the coming one? John is a real person too. And he's doubting. He's despairing. He's trapped in a prison cell, feeling forgotten, abandoned, dejected. And he doesn't know who to trust or who to turn to. And even John 
has doubt if Jesus really is the Messiah. Because John was sent to prepare the way for him. John knew the power of God's word more than anyone. He knew it didn't need tricks. But if God's word worked, then why hasn't the situation improved in the country? And why is John in prison? We began our service hearing our intro at Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Pretty hard to do when everyone judges you and hates you. Pretty hard to do when you are in prison. And you don't even need to be in a physical prison. Perhaps this time of year, with all the bright lights everywhere, maybe it makes you feel darker inside. Things just aren't the same as they used to be. You miss loved ones. You feel forgotten, abandoned, dejected, maybe by your own family. You don't know who to trust or, or who to turn to. Merry Christmas becomes just a, a, a trite holiday greeting, something that you just say to appease people. And we all want to keep up appearances and make it seem that our lives are fine. And so we do seek the approval and good judgment of others. We do care what others think about us. And we want other people to think that we're fine. But we know deep down that we're not. And so what comfort can Paul's message to the Corinthians bring us? And what joy can Jesus' advent or coming really bring anyway? Jesus does something beautiful for John the Baptist. He comes, he advents to John, but not physically. He sends his word to John through his two disciples. These two disciples that knew John personally. And he doesn't have them try all these tricks to cheer John up. He has them speak two Bible verses. And one of them is only half of a verse. Isaiah 61.1 The poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus knows that John the Baptist knows Scripture probably better than anyone, and especially the, 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 the book of Isaiah. And so John is going to have this verse memorized, and he's going to be able to fill in the rest of the verse, which goes like this. He has sent me, Jesus, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus proclaims specific gospel to John. He doesn't do it physically, but he entrusted these two disciples, these two messengers, to receive his word and to throw it straight to John. Jesus called these two men to be pastors to John. When Paul said that ministers are servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries, this is what he meant. The Greek word for mystery is where we get the term sacrament. 
You and I can't go visit Jesus in person today. You and I can't hop in a time machine and go back to see him. We too are captive in our sin. We are depressed by our guilt. We are locked in our darkness and we are judged by the world. But we don't need to go to Jesus. Because Jesus comes to us. He makes his, his advent, his third advent, into our hearts through his word and sacraments, these mysteries. And this, I, I firmly believe, is his most joyous advent of all, because it's personal. His first advent, when he was conceived of the Virgin Mary, the only person to witness that was Mary. His second advent, when, when he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, that'll be seen by all people. It will not be a, a secret to anyone. The whole world will know that he has come. But his third advent is to you. To you personally. To you specifically. It is Christ coming into your heart. We'll sing this hymn later. I just want to read it for you now. When sinners see their lost condition and feel the pressing load of sin, and Jesus comes on his blessed mission to heal the sin-sick heart within, all grief must flee before his grace and joy divine will take its place. When Jesus comes, O oh blessed story, he works a change in heart and life. God's kingdom comes with power and glory to young and old, to man and wife. Through sacrament and living word, faith, love, and hope are now conferred. No matter what darkness you are feeling in your heart, Jesus enters. He enters as you hear me preaching not my message, but his. He enters as he works through water to bring his grace and cleanse a child from their sin. He enters as I, a steward of God's mysteries, place his crucified and risen body and blood on your lips. And when he enters, he removes all your darkness and he brightens your heart, just as he did for John. No longer are you filled with the violet color of repent because of your sin or the longing color of blue but through the gospel, Jesus comes to you, purges your sin, and lifts your heart, and it becomes a rose, full of joy. You don't have to wait for his coming back, because he comes to you now. So even though this world may be bleak, and your life filled with sadness and darkness, and you come here and all you see are, are a few regular Christians, some humble bread and wine, and an okay sermon by a regular pastor. Paul encourages you, 
Therefore, judge nothing ahead of time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light whatever is hidden in darkness and also reveal the intentions of hearts. Then he says this surprising thing. Then there will be praise for each person from God. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness and God's word is despised and his sacraments are seen as worthless. But to you and I who are being saved, these foolish things are the power of God. Jesus comes and he brings light to our darkness. Jesus judges you as worthy of his grace and comfort and peace. And through Christ being in your heart, entering into your heart, God rejoices in you as his holy child. So God, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.